Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. I've watched a few men, the chosen ones, move effortlessly from one promotion to another, rarely putting a foot wrong. Now, sure, I know it's easier for a bloke to do this and it is just harder for women, but my guest today is one of those men. He was a star from the outset. Tom Malone has been the boss or executive producer for The Today Show, executive producer for 60 Minutes, and today he is managing director of one of the biggest radio networks in the country. Tom has managed everyone from Liz Hayes to Carl Stefanovic to Alan Jones and Ray Hadley, and he's done it all before 40. It has been a truly remarkable career and must look to many like a dream run. So I wanted to better understand his experience of leadership, what sort of leader he is, and what has made him so successful. Tom Malone, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Tom, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Am I right in saying that this is quite a scary interview for you? It's extremely daunting. Why? Uh, Well, one, I was surprised to be asked to speak on the series to begin with. There are a lot of much more qualified and prominent women that could offer insights about leadership um, than I could. And then I thought, well, maybe Helen has spoke to a couple of men. And then I looked back through the catalogue and I saw Norman Swan. And I thought, well, I'm hardly helping to guide a country through a pandemic. So for those reasons, uh, very intimidating. But also I think, and this is probably part of where we need to get to as a society, is that I think men have developed a bit of a fear of being involved in this space and talking about it because fear of saying something wrong. And so that's intimidating as well. Yeah, so firstly, thank you for saying yes. And, thank you for asking. And for not hesitating because I, I know it is scary and I've seen some very accomplished and senior men in this country really struggle when I've asked them various questions. So thank you. Um, but the reason why I've invited you is quite clear. You've been a, a young leader from a very early stage in your career and you are leading an interesting through an interesting period in radio where it transitions from a very masculine environment And you're also, you know, an up-and-coming, you know, future uh, executive at the highest ranks in this country. So there's good reasons for asking you. So I don't want you to be too scared. Thank you, Ellen. Okay. So that's out of the way. (laughs) What sort of leader are you? That's a really hard question to answer, you know. I don't honestly like talking about myself. But I thought, I reflected on the question and I thought, I like to be an inclusive leader as much as I can. I love leading people and seeing people develop. And I like leading teams through change. And so I think to achieve all of those things as a leader, you need to be transparent. And you need to be transparent both intellectually and I think physically. And what I mean by that is, I suppose, transparent is present. You need to be present 
Um, you need to allow people to see what you're doing and how you're doing it, both in a physical sense in the office, but also then sharing what you're doing from an intellectual point of view and a strategy point of view. And I think the best teams function that way when you empower people to go and do something. Mind you, you have to have a, um, a predetermined strategy that everyone's agreed to and signed up to. But once you establish those guardrails, then I think one of the best ways you can lead is to allow other people to go and lead their part of your team or their part of the division because that's the way you're going to get the best results. So, I mean, now, other people might disagree with my self-assessment, but that's what I strive to do is to be as transparent as possible in decision-making process and to empower people as much as possible um, to make decisions for themselves based on the predetermined strategy of the business or division that I'm currently leading. Is it something you think a lot about and have done some work on, or is it something that comes pretty naturally to you? I think there was an, an element that always came naturally to me, um, being from a big family and enjoying being around people. I'm a people person. But certainly then there have been um, um, development pieces that I've done that have helped. And when I look at my time running the Today Show and 60 Minutes, I was a very much a single-minded leader, uh, really uh, protective of the division I was leading and probably not as open as I could have been around engaging other parts of the business. And then Hugh Marks, when he became the CEO of Nine, he put a cohort of 16 senior leaders of the business through like a mini MBA, if you like, that lasted for about 12 months. There were various touch points through the year. And I think that really helped me develop as a leader and understand that leadership then is about being more open and transparent like I was just talking about and socialising ideas with your colleagues and stakeholders. Um, and invariably then by the time you come to make a decision, it's already been made because everyone's already on board with what you've been thinking about. So it's an element of came naturally, but then also there are things that I've, that I've really worked on um, to try and make myself a, a better leader and a better person really as well. You were incredibly young when you were made executive producer, which is in charge of all of the Today Show. How difficult was that? It was a pretty difficult time for a number of reasons um, at the Today Show. This is going back to 2006. I was the fifth EP in four years, so it was a fairly unstable sort of environment. Nine was going through a bit of change as well. There'd been, I think, three CEOs in two years. Um, there were various cost pressures in the business. It was the end of the Packer era. You know, Gerald Stone wrote the book, Who Killed Channel Nine? You know, various, the various opinions on the, on the validity of that book. But um, regardless of that, it was, a, it was a period of upheaval. So, and then at Today's Show specifically, we were under a lot of pressure. Sunrise was beating us like two to one every morning. Jessica Rowe was the subject of incredibly vitriolic and unfair criticism in the media, largely by other women. It was as well. incredible, right? That time. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, our internal communication wasn't great, external communication was terrible. So there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of things. And you were like about on. 18 at the time. No, I was 20, 26. <laughs> And, uh, and then I, I'd only been in TV three months and, um, and Eddie McGuire sort of saw something in me and took a chance on me, which I'll forever be grateful for. And then ironically, 
three weeks after I took over, this is a lot about media at the time and maybe still to this day, but Jessica announced she was pregnant. And Jessica had been trying to have a baby for many years. And then all of a sudden, everyone laid off because you can't pick on a pregnant woman. A woman was fair game, but a pregnant woman wasn't. If only it was that easy for everybody. <laughs> exactly. So it was, uh, that gave us some, you know, some breathing space in terms of um, the guns were directed elsewhere and, and we set about rebuilding the show. But just just to go down the Jessica experience for a little bit, as a decent human, it must have been difficult for you to watch her just being shredded for her laugh or her look or any other thing that people could pick on and you couldn't protect her. And, and how did she keep turning up every day? It was awful. I don't know how she kept turning up every day, especially given her IVF battle at the time was very private. So none of us really knew what was going on behind the scenes. But obviously, you know, that was, she was going through a pretty intense emotional and physical and intellectual and psychological battle behind the scenes to conceive. And then she'd come into work every day, go through the process of hair and makeup and put on her game face to get out on the studio floor where she knew people were watching, waiting to pillory her. So... You know, it was an extraordinary display of resilience from Jessica that I don't think she's ever been given, acknowledged or even been given the credit for. So you have a successful period of time as the executive producer of the Today Show, so much so that you're then promoted to 60 Minutes. So if you thought Today Show was tough, 60 Minutes must have been as tough, if not tougher. Yeah, uh, yes, and they're completely different. But I think I had six years at the Today Show, so that enabled to me to develop skills of leadership and putting in place processes so that people thought there was, well, there was equity around what we were doing around opportunities and shifts and then getting people to sign up to a common strategy. What are we doing with this show? Who do we want to be? Who do we want our viewer to be? How are we going to get there? And so I learned a lot of those skills in those years at the Today Show. And then going to 60 Minutes then, while I had no experience in long-form television at all, that was the skill set I was going to take. Having said that, was extremely intimidating. So on my, again, I was 32, and Liz Hayes took me out for lunch. And we got in her car at Channel 9 in the car park, and she had one of those brand-new Mercedes that handed you the seatbelt. And then when you put it on, it sucked you back into your seat and I, I felt like I was a hostage in Liz Hayes' car. And before we'd exited the boom gate at Channel 9, she said to me, what gives you the right to think you can run 60 minutes? And I thought, wow, well, I've got to be on my game here, you know. And we went for lunch up at, at Crow's Nest and for a couple of hours and I had to try and prove my bona fides to Liz. But it was a great, it was a great lesson for me and a great introduction straight away that this was serious. 60 Minutes is serious. People here are really passionate about the product. They're professional and they strive for excellence. Now, not that they don't at the Today Show, but this was, this was a different environment. And it was a, I was on notice then. And it was one of the great things to happen to me then because like, I stood up straight away. It was like, I have to be right on my game here. And so it was, uh, in a way, it was a favour that Liz did me by having that pretty robust conversation right in the, in the first week at 60 Minutes. Again, it was a similar job to Today's show. Morale wasn't great. 
they'd been beaten by Sunday night the last couple of years. And so we actually got everyone off site for a couple of days and we sort of did a purging, if you like, of what was going wrong. And I got everyone to agree to a common set of values around what we wanted 60 minutes to be going forward, what we wanted to stand for, how we were going to do that, everything from production values to production techniques. Um, and then I think once everyone agrees to a strategy, then it removes the emotion from a lot of decision-making because you can point back to the aforementioned agreed strategy and you just drive every decision through that prism. Well, does that fit what we agreed? No. Well, we're not doing it then. How did you come up with that as the solution to getting around the barriers that existed when, as you say, you'd not been a 60 Minutes reporter, you'd not spent a lot of time at that kind of pointy end of the journalism. And just to be clear, the journalism here is not the not the bit that's interesting. The bit that's interesting is how you take on a really big job with a bunch of people that are pretty resistant to the concept of a young person coming in, regardless of gender, and completely bring them on board. I mean, that's what you did in two quite distinct roles, probably using the same skills. So I'm interested to yeah. hear the skills that you use both unintentionally and then intentionally. Yeah, well, I think, well, a few things. I think you need to listen to people. Like, you need to listen to people. And in both of those jobs, there are people that have worked there for 20, 30 years, be it the sound operator or the cameraman, and everyone's opinion is just as valuable as everyone else's. And they've seen a lot and they've done a lot and they've been a lot. And invariably, they've got great ideas and no one's ever listened to them. And the second thing is, if you empower people but make them accountable... So a lot of times, probably I took, I potentially took over from leaders that were more dictatorial or authoritarian than I was. And so if people were going to come with an idea and you say, okay, well, do you think it can work? Because I, I don't know, I haven't been out on the road, but if you're telling me it's going to work, then you can go and do it. But the onus will be on you to make the story work. And I think if you give people that freedom, invariably they respond and they deliver. And they then enjoy that environment uh, that they're working in. What about the other problem that is managing up? In terms of managing up, I don't, I, I think early in my career, I didn't do that very well at the Today Show 60 Minutes. Um, I didn't want to deliberately seek to ingratiate myself with my bosses. And then I didn't necessarily want to go to them with a problem unless I had an answer. And then invariably, if you have an answer, well, you don't need to go to them with a problem to begin with. So, I think that's in terms of communicating probably more than managing up. That's something I then learnt more after I did that course that Hugh Marks put us through, um, sort of that was a good 10 years into my time at nine. Um, and managing up, depending on the interpretation, can sound a little bit duplicitous. But I think in terms of engaging your colleagues and your bosses around what you're doing, it's a really valuable tool um, that I had to learn. Let's jump to your experience of managing women and working with women in a pretty male-dominated area. Was there a period of time where you noticed that it is just tougher on them? I think I'd probably always had it a little bit in me. Like, I've got four older sisters, so I've seen their professional careers and understood from conversations the difficulties 
that they've encountered. So I think I brought to those roles a, a certain understanding, but there's no doubt then being in the environment myself opens your eyes to it even more. I think a couple of things around women in TV, which is what we're talking about, certainly women on air get judged by what they wear and what they look like, not what they're saying, which is ridiculous and extraordinary, but that's what was happening at the time and probably still happens to this day. Whereas men get judged more about what they're saying. So I think that was the the big call out um, straight away. And then I think off air, it was a, a male dominated, still is a male dominated industry. It's getting better all the time. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but all that when I was the, in that role, all the EPs of all the shows were men. There was well, was Jebby Phillips was one woman running the morning show, but in the news and current affairs division, it was it was all men. Um, and that was it was obvious at a work lunch or a work function. And I think the hard thing for women, not just in media, but in any, any industry, then is is reconciling. Uh, at what point in their career, if they are going to pursue having a family, do they then go and do that? Because then you, it's there are really visceral examples in the workplace of the impact that's had on a woman's career when she takes a pause in her career to have a child or a family, and you could see you can see that thinking going on, and you can and we have those discussions with people. Yeah, well, you would have had really personal discussions. Yep. with women about that stuff. Mm. I mean, your own. Your own wife was a journalist and in media and pursuing a career and has had, how many children do you have now? Four, four children. Yeah. <laughs> just, just checking. You haven't had another one? Yeah. No, no, no. It's just the four. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, Alyssa's had exactly those challenges, right? So you were experiencing it at home. Yeah. And I, I suppose I was experiencing it three years before when I became, and then we started having kids. And believe it or not, you know, at, at the time, the uh, maternity leave form at Channel 9 required a father's signature. Sorry, a husband's signature. You don't need a husband to have a baby, obviously. Um, but that was, you know, and that was only 2009. Um, yeah, and I, I've experienced with Alyssa in, in terms of how she has gone back to and from work and now has pursued a change in career direction. And probably some of that was, part of it was a, a pull factor of, you know, she felt a calling. She's now studying teaching and a vocation to teach, but part of it was also probably a push factor with the regards to probably not practical to go back and pursue that career in media and journalism as well. Just uh, as a sidebar, we run a program for women who want to return to work. And it's really common if you've had two or three children that the job that you did before you went into raising a family, you don't want to do on the way out. So that means they do go back to study. today and you're now in a very high profile role running some of the biggest radio stations in the country. You have some of the most famous egos in the country working to you. You inherited Alan Jones and Alan left in the time that you've been managing that radio station, which was, I imagine, a tough period of time. All those skills that you learned at the Today Show and 60 Minutes obviously are coming to bear in this current role. Is this the toughest role you've had? Uh, well, I think it's um, it, it's a different role. I don't, I'm not sure if I'd call it the toughest role. I just haven't thought about it in those. It, it may be. There have been really tough moments. 
but it's certainly it's been yeah it's been a significant challenge to reshape what talk radio looks like on our stations and there were a couple of driving probably factors to that one is a basic values proposition around we have to be better reflective of the community we seek to service and then secondly there's a, actually a real there's a commercial element to it as well which is if we want to attract the right advertisers then we also have to make sure that we're reflecting their values as well. So it's, and it's a real struggle to reconcile because it's a journey. You can't go, you can't get there quickly. Radio more than any other medium, the consumers, in this case, the listeners feel they own the product. It's a very intimate medium. It's a one-on-one communication. People are listening in their bathrooms, bedrooms, kitchens, sheds, And in talk radio, you're there for people during moments of truth, bushfires, floods, COVID. So there's this incredible relationship between broadcaster and listener. And then when you change something, then that's a big change for that individual listener as well. So it's something that we've worked on in terms of, I suppose, evolution, not revolution. At the same time, we've launched 20 new shows in 18 months. And um, we put, we decided we really needed to have women represented on our stations, but it couldn't be token. They had to be great broadcasters in their own right, bringing down the age, average age of our broadcasters as well. Now we've still got a long way to go, not just on gender diversity, but people of different backgrounds as well. But I think we're on that journey because as I started out, we need to make sure that we represent the communities that we seek to serve. One of the things about being a high-profile journalist or a high-profile person in this country is that that person often is on the high wire. They, they're out every day. They take all the slings and arrows, as you said before. There's always someone wanting to tear them down. So they've usually built up pretty big egos, pretty big armory to enable them to go out there and do that every day. You turn up and you say, can we have a chat? I don't reckon the show's working or I don't reckon um, you've got a long-term future. How do you manage those difficult conversations? It's really hard. And some of them are friends and some of them have been known for many years. Some of them have been to your home or you've been to their home or you've been to birthday parties and things like that. So I think the only way to handle those situations is to be honest with people and straightforward you have to have the conversation as much as you can face-to-face. There have been one or two incident, instances where sometimes it hasn't been possible because of different cities, but as much as possible, you have the conversation in person. And I think you have to, at the, at the end of the day, you're dealing with people, so you have to be very, very careful how you have that conversation. But I think the thing that you can always make sure that you're doing is that you're being consistent. You're consistent with the business strategy. You do what you say you will do. Because if the decision forms part of a strategy and you don't make the decision, then the rest of the company knows that you haven't done that because that person's a friend or because that person's this. And so that then removes some of your authority as a leader if you don't follow through on what you said you would do. So, and this is what comes back to setting the strategy and looking through the prism of, is this in the best interest of the business? And if you're making a decision on that basis, 
as hard sometimes as the personal aspect of it is. And there'll probably, there's always going to be, I'm sure this has happened through many businesses. There are friendships that maybe are not as close as they used to be, but you have to stay true to the values of the decision-making process you've set up in that business. And that's, I suppose it gets back to this leadership discussion we're having around people then see in you consistency. How often are you able to pull off one of those conversations and maintain the friendship? Um, it's, it, depend, it, it depends on yeah. the all sorts of situations that go into it. Um, but, you know, I'm going to take a guess here. Mm-hmm. I'll make it easier on you. Yeah. That you do it pretty well, that you are pretty good at maintaining at least a cordial, you know, path back to a friendship. Oh, I, I, for, I will always be a cordial path back to friendship, definitely. Yep. Um, I think the way that I look at some of these things, and I'm sure, and Alyssa and I have talked about this openly at home, someday it'll, it'll probably happen to me as well. Some, you get the tap on the shoulder and then, but that's part of working in media. Be it as an executive, it's more high profile when you're on air. Um, and so it's sort of part of the rub of working in the in the business, I suppose. I was talking to Karina Chapman in an earlier episode around managing really big egos, and she worked with... Um, she worked with some big ones. Big ones. <laughs> like some of the best ones, like Kerry Packer, Rupert Murdoch, Tony Abbott, Joe Hockey. I'm probably missing a few others. How do you manage egos? And not only the egos of the people around you, people above you, and then I guess even your own, because you're in that kind of world where it's all about ego. Well, it was when I was around. Yes. Yeah. I think, uh, well, I think the way, the way that I like to manage egos or manage people <laughs> is, is constant communication. And I think you've got to touching base with people. And it's the little things. I think if you look after the little things, the big things take care of themselves. Whereas if you don't address a little thing, then it can snowball into a big thing. So, and I, the other thing I think, and this is probably indicative of some, where we're going sometimes as a society, but I still believe in the phone call or the face-to-face than an email or an SMS. So pick up the phone, have a conversation, get in the same room, have a conversation, work it out, move on. And if you do it on a regular basis then I tend to find that you get the outcome that you're looking for. And it's that old, you make sure you're putting equity in the bucket all the time. So if you need to take it out every now and then, you can because you've been putting something into it. So just on the on your point around egos and it's the little things that you have to look out for, can you give me some examples of what you mean by that? Yeah, I think you need to be present. So um, you want to make sure that if they're if there's something that's wrong that they may not have communicated to you, but by virtue of the fact that you've stuck your head in their office or you've given them a call, then they may bring it up. Then you're addressing something before they've even had a chance to realise it's an issue. So those little things and those touch points, be it by phone or by walking the floor, or it might be a message, but I advocate phone calls and, and popping your head in, help to then take the heat or the steam out of any situation that may arise because one, you're hearing their concerns before they've become concerns. Two, you're making sure you're constantly building on a relationship. And three, you are putting equity into the relationship bucket, if you like. So if you do need to pull them up on something, it's a much easier conversation because it's not the first conversation you've had with them in two weeks. You've spoken to them every second day or once a week or twice a week for the past four weeks, 
which makes it easy to pick up the phone and say, hey, you overreached this morning, or hey, you shouldn't have done that yesterday. Interesting, though, because that takes so much emotional energy from you, the leader. And some people just don't have that emotional bandwidth. There are introverted leaders that the idea of having to pop their head in to see someone, you know, on a pretty semi-regular basis, that they are paying to do a job is just like, hey, I'm not doing that. That's just beyond me. And, you know, you've worked with a lot of different executives as well. So you obviously don't find that emotionally draining to do that. It comes naturally to you. Um, part of it comes naturally. There are times definitely where I find it emotionally draining. And usually they're the times when I haven't followed my own disciplines of making the regular phone calls and the check-ins. Then I realise it's been three or four weeks and I haven't spoken to X and I've got to call them and chip them about something or say that. And so that's when you go, oh, now I'm calling and I feel bad that I'm calling because I haven't engaged with them for three or four weeks and I'm going to deliver some news that they may not want to hear, but I need to do it because... Otherwise, it could go further off the rails. And they're not on the strategy. Exactly. Yeah, got it. What has been the hardest leadership moment for you? I think we sort of touched on it before, but I think anything where you're leading through or managing ambiguity is really tough. And that's where you see great leaders rise. And then anything that involves a, you know, personal conflict. So there was a, there was a moment at 60 Minutes where a good mate of mine, Nick Fordham, was managing the Wolf of Wall Street. And we secured the exclusive interview with the Wolf of Wall Street, who we know is a... Not the most upstanding man <laughs> that any of us have ever... Correct. ...read or bowed or know about. Yeah. And so Liz Hayes went over to the States as part of some stories she was doing and she interviewed the Wolf of Wall Street. And she rightly pressed him on some issues that he needed to answer and he walked out of the interview. Well, then we had a moment to promote to say, you've got to come and see this interview... Of course, that wasn't going to be great for Nick, who was my friend, who's managing the Wolf of Wall Street. And so the challenge for me in that regard was I had to be true to the values of 60 Minutes while jeopardising a relationship with Nick. And so that was, you know, and Alyssa often says that was one of those weeks where you hardly slept. You know, you were tossing and turning all week. But the right, and this is the decision we made and the right thing we did wasn't really a decision to make, but it was the story was going to air in its totality because that's the rules of engagement with 60 Minutes. But that was a really tough moment for me to be caught between the integrity of a story and the, and the value of a friendship. I'm going to ask you the question that every woman gets asked. How do you do the juggle? You're a dad of four kids. Yeah. Um, well, I... It's teamwork and, I, you know, Alyssa does a, a lot of heavy lifting. I like to be as present, as active as I can. I think COVID's helped a lot in terms of understanding that you don't manage by process, you manage by outcome. And so as long as, long as the work's being done, then it doesn't really matter where you are. Now, having said that, there are jobs, of course, especially in the creative industry like media where there's definitely a value ascribed to being present because of the collaboration that brings. So no one's perfect. I would like to be, I'd like to be more present than I currently am. Um, and in terms of the juggle, there's no doubt Alyssa does more of the heavy lifting than I do. And that's a, you know, decision we've made as a couple. But then it's a wrestle as well because there are sacrifices that she's made and we acknowledge this in our relationship and I've acknowledged it, you know, at, at other times as well. because. 
it has been great to have someone a bit more present in the home before and after school. As a manager of a lot of women, what advice have you got? This is a podcast mostly listened to by young women. I wouldn't have any specific advice for young women. I'm sure there's more people more qualified than me. That wasn't a trick question. No, 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 I realise that. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's, I just reflect on advice that I think you'd give any young person uh, or any person even as they're making their way through their career. And it's something that probably values that I learned at home through mum and dad who were both in small business and it was around, it was the simple things, be punctual, work hard and be honest. You're pretty much a perfect employee if you do those. If you also show a flair for what you do, wow. You know, so they're sort of some of the things you can work on that are within your control. And then I think the other thing, and I suppose this is more aimed at probably people in their 20s and even into their 30s, but and you would understand this. But, you know, I spent 20 years of my career working either shift work or weekends or both. I did 13 years of breakfast shift. I did seven years of weekend shifts. And so nothing comes easy. You've got to work hard for it. And there's a grind involved in jobs everywhere. But I think if you're prepared to do that, those, those shifts and those hours, and you also show a flair for what you do, I think success will come. Now, sometimes there are things that are out of your control, and I wouldn't argue the point on that, definitely, depending on what business you're in and what the culture's like in that business. And then you have to make other choices. But I suppose that would be my advice to people in the workforce in general. As I said, I, with regards to advice for women, there's a whole bunch of people far more qualified than me to offer advice around some of the things that, let's face it, it's on, women in the workplace experience that men don't. And still a long way from resolving a lot of those issues. You were written about a couple of years ago as a contender to be CEO of Nine. Is that a natural path for you to go into leading a big media organisation? Or do you look at that role and go, maybe that's just far too much and I could pick up the kids from school a bit more often? Um. Without wanting to embarrass you. No, no, I think... Or hold you to this, by the no, way. No, I think it depends on timing. I think it was great to be part of that process. I was probably not a front runner in that process, but we had some really good people involved in, the, you know, in that process. Mike Sneesby became the CEO, and he's now leading our business with a great team behind him as well. I'm certainly ambitious to do more in my career. Yeah, I guess that's my real question. Whether it's leading nine sometime down the track or whether it takes a divergent path and... I do something else. But for the moment, I'm also comfortable with the job I have now and the lifestyle I have now around just talking about the juggle, around what it means for me and the family. And in the talking before, before about shift work and weekends, so in the sport role for four years, I was either at a match or watching it at home on a Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. It was pretty bad for a blister in my relationship. You can't go out for a drink on a Friday night or a dinner. And then on the weekend when the kids go, do you want to go to the park and kick the footy, you know? And there's no doubt those roles, like the CEO of Nine, and there's so many of them in the industry that are all-consuming. Um, and so then there's a sacrifice the family makes. So I think to answer your question, yes, I want to, I'm ambitious to do more. It would depend on the timing 
and what the opportunity is. And it may be at night, it may be elsewhere, and that's okay too. Tom Malone, congratulations on an incredible career to date. Thank you for showing up and answering some tricky questions and um, we'll watch with interest where your career goes. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 